Welcome to tape number seven of the Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copy on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to the reading of The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing on with the reading of chapter 20, The Gifts of God. Number 5, The Gift of Faith. The salvation of God does not actually become ours until we, we believe in, rest upon, and receive Christ as a personal Savior. But as we cannot see without both sight and light, neither can we believe unto life and faith are divinely communicated to us. Accordingly, for by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Arminians would make the second clause of verse 8 a mere repetition of the first, and in less expressive and emphatic language. Since salvation is by grace, it is superfluous to add that it is not of yourself, but because faith is our act, it was necessary so that the excellencies of it should not be irrigated by the creature, but ascribed unto God to point out that it is not of ourselves. The very faith which receives a gratuitous salvation is not the unassisted act of man's own will. As God must give me breath before I can breathe, so faith, ere I believe. Compare also faith which is by him, Acts 3.16, who believe according to the working of his mighty power, Ephesians 1.19, through the faith of the operation of God, Colossians 2.12, who by him do believe in God, 1 Peter 1.21. Number six, the gift of repentance. While it is the bound duty of every sinner to repent, Acts 17.30, for ought he not to cease from and abhor his rebellion against God? Yet he is so completely under the blinding power of sin that a miracle of grace is necessary before he will do so. A broken and contrite spirit are of God's providing. It is the Holy Spirit who illuminates the understanding to perceive the heinousness of sin, the heart to loathe it, and the will to repudiate it. Faith and repentance are the first evidence of spiritual life. 
For when God quickens a sinner, he convicts him of the evil of sin, causes him to hate it, moves him to sorrow over and turn from it. Surely after I have turned, I repented, and after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded. Jeremiah 31, 19. All, this is a quote from uh, Matthew Henry. Quote, All his grace in us. End quote. Compare a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel. Acts 5.31 Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Acts 11.18 If God peradventure will give them repentance. 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 2.25 Number 7. The gift of grace. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.4 Grace is used there in its widest sense, including all the benefits of Christ's merit and mediation, providential or spiritual, temporal or eternal. It includes regenerating, sanctifying, preserving grace, as well as every particular grace of the new nature, faith, hope, and love. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ, Ephesians 4, 7. That is, according as he is pleased to bestow, and not according to our ability or asking. Therefore, we have no cause to be proud or boastful. Whatever grace we have to resist the devil, patiently bear affliction, or overcome the world, is from him. Whatever obedience we perform or devotion we render him or sacrifice we make is of his grace. Therefore must we confess, for all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. 1 Chronicles 29.14 Chapter 21 The Guidance of God There is a need to amplify the positive aspect of divine guidance. There are few subjects which bear on a practical side of the Christian life and and that believers are more exercised about than that they may be led of the Lord in all their ways. Yet when some important decision has to be made, they are often puzzled to know how the Lord's mind is obtained. Great numbers of tracts and booklets on this subject have been written, but they are so vague that they offer little help. There certainly exists a real need today for some clear, definitive treatment of the subject. For some years I have been convinced that one thing which contributes much to shrouding this subject in mystery is the loose, misleading terms generally employed by those who refer to it. While such expressions are used, is this according to God's will? Do I have the prompting of the Holy Spirit? Were you led of the Lord in that? Sincere minds will continue to be perplexed and never arrive at any certainty. These expressions are so commonly used in religious circles that probably quite a few readers will be surprised at our challenging them. We certainly do not condemn these expressions as erroneous, but rather we wish to point out that they are too intangible for most people until definitely defined. What alternative, then, have we to suggest? 
In connection with every decision we make, every plan we form, every action we execute, let the question be, is this in harmony with God's word? Is it what the scriptures enjoin? Does it square with the rule God has given us to walk by? Is it in accord with the example which Christ left us to follow? If it is in the harmony if it is in harmony with God's word, then it must be according to God's will, for his will is revealed in his word. If I do what the scriptures enjoin, then I must be prompted by the Holy Spirit, for he never moves anyone to act contrary thereto. If my conduct squares with the rule of righteousness, the precepts and commands of the word, then I must be led of the Lord, for he leads only in the paths of righteousness. Psalm 23, verses 1 and 3. A great deal of mystical vagueness and puzzling uncertainty will be removed if the reader substitute for, is this according to God's will, the simpler and more tangible, is this according to God's word? God in his infinite condescension and transcendent grace has given us his word for this very purpose so that we need not stumble along blindly ignorant of what pleases or displeases him, but that we might know his mind. That divine word is given to us not simply for information, but to regulate our conduct, to enlighten our minds, and to mold our hearts. The word supplies us with an unerring chart by which to steer through the dangerous sea of life. If we sincerely and diligently follow, it will deliver us from disastrous rocks and submerged reefs and direct us safely to the heavenly harbor. That word has all the instructions we need for every problem, every emergency we may be called upon to face. That word has been given to us that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 2 Timothy 3.17 How thankful we should be that the triune God has favored us with such a word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119.105 The metaphor used here is taken from a man walking along a dangerous road on a dark night in urgent need of a lantern to show him where to walk safely and comfortably to avoid injury and destruction. The same figure is used again in the New Testament. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. Second Peter one nineteen. The dark place is this world, and it is only as we take heed to the word that the light God has given us that we shall be able to perceive and avoid the broad road which leadeth to destruction and discern the narrow way which alone leadeth unto life. It should be observed that this very that this verse plainly intimates God has placed his word in our hands for an intensely practical purpose, namely to direct our walk and to regulate our deportment. At once this shows us what is the first and principal use we are to make of this divine gift. It would do a traveler little good to diligently scrutinize the mechanism of a lamp or to admire its beautiful design. Rather, he is to take it up 
he is to take it up and make a practical use of it. Many are zealous in reading the letters of Scripture, and many are charmed with the evidences of its divine authorship. But how few realize the primary purpose for which God gave the Scriptures. How few make a practical use of them, ordering the details of their lives by its rules and regulations. They eulogize the lamp, but they do not walk by its light. Our first need as little children was to learn to walk. The mother's milk was only a means to an end, to nourish the infant's life to strengthen its limbs so that it should be put to a practical use. So it is spiritually. When we have been born again and fed by the Spirit on the pure milk of the Word, our first need is to learn to walk, to walk as the children of God. This can be learned only as we ascertain our Father's will as revealed in Holy Writ. By nature, we are totally ignorant of His will for us and of what promotes our highest interest. It is solemn and humbling that man is the only creature born into this world devoid of intelligence as to how to act and who needs to be taught what is evil and what is good for him. All the lower orders of creation are endowed with an instinct which moves them to act discreetly, to avoid what is harmful, and to follow what is good. But not so man. Animals and birds do not have to be taught which herbs and berries are poisonous. They need no curbs upon them not to overeat or overdrink. You cannot even force a horse or a cow to gorge and make itself sick. Even plants turn their faces to the light and open their mouths to catch the falling rain. But fallen man has not even the instinct of the brutes. Usually he has to learn by painful experience what is harmful and injurious. And, as it has been well said, quote, experience keeps an expensive school, end quote. Her fees are high. Too bad that so many only discover this when it is too late, when they have wrecked their constitutions beyond repair. Some may answer to this, but man is endowed with a conscience. True, but how well does it serve him until he is enlightened by the word and convicted by the spirit? Man's understanding has been so darkened by sin and folly is so bound up in his heart from childhood, Proverbs 22:15, that until he is instructed, he does not know what God requires of him, nor what is for his highest good. That is why God gave us his word, to make known what he justly demands of us, to inform us of those things which destroy the soul, to reveal the baits which Satan uses to capture and slay so many, to point out the highway of holiness which alone leads to heaven, Hebrews 12:14, and to acquaint us with the rules which must be observed if we are to walk that highway. Our first duty and our first aim must be to take up the scriptures to ascertain what is God's revealed will for us. For what are the paths He forbids? Excuse me. What are the paths He forbids us to walk? What are the ways pleasing in His sight? Many things are prohibited in the Word which neither our reason nor our conscience would discover. For example, we learn that which is highly esteemed upon. upon among men is abomination in the sight of God, Luke 16:15. The friendship of the world is enmity with God, James 4:4. 4, 4. He that hasteth, hasteth 
with his feet sinneth. Proverbs 19.2 Many things also are commanded which can only be known if we acquaint ourselves with its contents. For example, lean not unto thine own understanding. Proverbs 3.5 Put not your trust in princes nor in the Son of Man in whom there is no help. Psalm 146.3 Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Matthew 5.44 The above are but samples of hundreds of others. It is obvious that God's word cannot be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path unless we are familiar with its contents, particularly until we are formed on the practical rules God has given us to walk by. Hence it should be obvious that the first need of the Christian is not to delve into the intricacies and mysteries of Scripture, study the prophecies, nor entertain himself with the wonderful types therein. Rather, he needs to concentrate on what will instruct him as to the kind of conduct which will be pleasing to the Lord. The scriptures are given us primarily not for our intellectual gratification nor for emotional admiration, but for life's regulation. Nor are the precepts and commands, the warnings and encouragements contained therein, simply for our information. They are to be reduced to practice. They require unqualified obedience. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Joshua 1.8 God will be no man's debtor. In keeping his commands there is great reward. Psalm 19.11 Part of that reward is deliverance from being deceived by the false appearances of things, from forming erroneous estimates, from pursuing a foolish policy. Part of that reward is acquiring wisdom so that we choose what is good, act prudently, and follow those paths which lead to righteousness, peace, and joy. He who treasures in his heart the divine precepts and diligently seeks to walk by their rule will escape those evils which destroy his fellows. If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. John 11.9 To walk in the day means to be in communion with one who is light, to conduct ourselves according to his revealed will. Just so far as the Christian walks in the path of duty as defined for him in the word, will he walk surely and comfortably. The light of that word makes the way plain before him, and he is preserved from falling over the obstacles which, with which Satan seeks to trip him. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. Verse 10. Here is the solemn contrast. He who walks according to the dictates of his lusts and follows the counsel and example of the ungodly falls into the snares of the devil and perishes. There is no light in such a one, for he is not regulated by the Son of Righteousness. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John 8.12 It is one thing to have life, it is another to enjoy the light of life. That is, only obtained by following Christ. 
Notice the tense of the verb, for it is he that followeth me, which signifies a steady, continuous course of action. The promise to such a one is he shall not walk in darkness. But what does it mean to follow Christ? First and foremost, to be emptied of self-will, for even Christ pleased not himself, Romans 15.3. It is absolutely essential that self-will and self-pleasing be mortified if we are to be delivered from walking in darkness. The unchanging order is made known by Christ. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Matthew 16.24 Christ cannot be followed until self is denied and the cross accepted as the distinguishing mark of discipleship. Was it, what does it mean to deny self? It means to repudiate our own goodness, to renounce our own wisdom, to have no confidence in our own strength, to completely set aside our own will and wishes that we should not henceforth live unto ourselves, but unto him who died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.15 What does it mean to take up our cross? It signifies a readiness to endure the world's hatred and scorn, to voluntarily surrender our lives to God, to use all our faculties for His glory. The cross stands for unreserved and loving obedience to the Lord, for of Him it is written that He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It is only as self, with all its lustings and interest, is denied, and as the heart is dominated by the spirit of Calvary, that we are prepared to follow Christ. And what is signified by to follow Christ? It means to take his yoke upon us, Matthew 11:29, and live in complete subjection to him, to yield fully to his lordship, to obey his commands, and thus truly serve him. It is seeking to do only those things which are pleasing in his sight, to emulate the example which he left us, and he was in all things subject to the scriptures. As we follow him, we shall not walk in darkness. We will be in happy fellowship with him who is the true light. For our encouragement... For they were men of like passions, it is recorded of Caleb and Joshua. They have wholly followed the Lord. Numbers 32.12 Having put their hand to the plow, they did not look back. Consequently, instead of perishing in the wilderness with their disobedient fellows, they entered into the promised land. Thus the great business, the task of the Christian, is to regulate his life by and conform his conduct to the precepts of the written word and the example left us by the incarnate word. As he does so, and in proportion as he does so, he is emancipated from the darkness of his natural mind, freed from the follies of his corrupt heart, (coughs) excuse me, delivered from the mad course of this world, and he escapes the snares of the devil. Through knowledge shall he be de- shall the just be delivered. Proverbs 11.9 Yes, great is the reward of keeping God's commandments. Then shalt thou understand righteousness and judgment and equity. Yea, every good path. When wisdom entereth into the heart, thine heart, and knowledge is pleasant unto thy soul, discretion shall preserve thee. Understanding shall keep thee. Proverbs 2, 9-11 to 
It is well for those who are sensitive to both their own weakness infallibility and the difficulties with which they are surrounded in life that the Lord has promised to guide his people with his eye to cause them to hear this is the way walk ye in it when they are in danger of turning aside for this purpose he has given to us the written word as a lamp to our feet and encourage us to pray for the teaching of his Holy Spirit so that we may rightly understand and apply it however too often Many widely deviate from the path of duty and commit gross, perplexing mistakes while they profess a sincere desire to know the will of God and think they have His warrant and authority. This must certainly be due to misapplications of the rule by which they judge, since the rule itself is infallible. The scriptures cannot deceive us if rightly understood, but they may, if perverted, confirm us in a mistake the Holy Spirit cannot mislead those under his influence but we may suppose that we are so when we are not many have been deceived as to what they ought to do into forming a judgment beforehand of events in which they are closely concerned by expecting direction in ways which the Lord has not warranted here are some of the principal ones some when two or more things were in view and they could not immediately determine which to prefer, committed their case to the Lord in prayer. Then they have proceeded to cast lots, taking it for granted after such an solemn appeal that the turning up of the lot might be safely rested on as an answer from God. It is true the scripture and right reason assures us that the Lord disposes the lot. Several cases are recorded in the Old Testament where lots were used by divine appointment, but I think neither these nor the choosing of Matthias to the apostleship by lot are proper precedents for our conduct. In the division of land of Canaan, in the affair of Achan, and in the nomination of Saul to the kingdom, recourse to lot was by God's express command. The instance of Matthias likewise was singular, since it can never happen again, namely the choice of an apostle. All these were before the canon of Scripture was completed, and before the full descent and communication of the Holy Spirit, who was promised to dwell with the church at the end of time. Under the New Testament dispensation, we are invited to come boldly to the throne of grace and make our requests known to God, and to cast our cares upon Him. But we have neither precept nor promise respecting the use of lots. To have recourse to them without his appointment seems to be tempting him rather than honoring him, and it savors more of presumption than dependence. Effects of this expedient have often been unhappy and hurtful, a sufficient proof of how little it is to be trusted as a guide of our conduct. Others, when in doubt, have opened the Bible and expected the find the, something to direct them to the first verse that should they should cast their eye upon. It is no small discredit to this practice that the heathens use some of their favorite books in the same way. They base their persuasions of what they ought to do or what should befall them according to the passage they happened upon. Among the Romans, the writings of Virgil were free, frequently consulted on these occasions, which gave rise to the well-known expression of the 
Sortes Virgilinae, Latin term. Indeed, Virgil is as well adapted to satisfy inquiries in this way as the Bible itself. For if people will be governed by the occurrence of a single text of Scripture without regarding the context or comparing it with the general tenor, tenor of the word and with their own circumstances, they may commit the greatest extravagances. They may expect the greatest impossibilities and contradict the plainest dictates of common sense, and all the while they think that they have the word of God on their side. Can opening to Second Samuel 7.3, when Nathan said unto David, Do all that is in thy heart, for the Lord is with thee, be sufficient to determine the lawfulness or expediency of actions? Or can a glance of the eye upon our Lord's words to the woman of Canaan be it unto thee even as thou wilt, Matthew 15:28. amount to proof that the present earnest desire of the mind, whatever it may be, shall be surely accomplished. Yet it is certain that big matters with important consequences have been engaged in and the most sanguine expectations formed upon no better warrant than dipping, as it is called, upon a text of Scripture. A sudden strong impression of a text that seems to have some resemblance to the concern on the mind has been accepted by many as an infallible token that they were right and that things would go just as they would have them. Or, on the other hand, if the passage bore a threatening aspect, it has filled them with fears which they have found afterwards were groundless. These impressions have been more generally required guarded and trusted to, but have frequently proved no less delusive. It is true that such impressions of a precept or a promise that humble, animate, or comfort the soul by giving it a lively sense of the truth contained in the words are both profitable and pleasant. Many of the Lord's people have been instructed and supported, especially in a time of trouble, by some seasonable word of grace applied and sealed by His Spirit to their hearts. But if impressions or impulses are received as a voice from heaven directing to particular actions that could not be proved to be duties without them, a person may be inwardly misled into great evils and gross delusions. Many have been so. There is no doubt that the enemy of our souls, if permitted, can furnish us with scriptures in abundance for these purposes. Some, purpose, some persons judge of the nature and event of their designs by the freedom they have and they find in prayer. They say that they commit their ways to God, seek His direction, and are favored with much enlargement of spirit. Therefore they cannot doubt, but what they have in view is acceptable in the Lord's sight. I would not absolutely reject every plea of this kind, yet without other corroborating evidence I could not admit it as proof. It is not always easy to determine when we have spiritual freedom in prayer. Self is deceitful. When our hearts are much fixed upon a thing, this may, be put, this may put words and earnestness into our mouths. Too often we find we first determine secretly for ourselves and then ask counsel of God. In such a disposition, we are ready to grasp at everything that may seem to favor our darling scheme. And the Lord, for the detecting and chastisement of our hypocrisy, for hypocrisy it is, 
though perhaps hardly perceptible to ourselves, may answer us according to our idols. See Ezekiel 14, 3 and 4. Besides, the grace of prayer may be in exercise when the subject matter of the prayer may be founded upon a mistake from the intervention of circumstances with which we are unacquainted. Thus, I may have a friend in a distant country. I hope he is alive. I pray for him, and it is my duty to do so. The Lord, by his spirit, assists his people in their present duty. If I can pray with much liberty for my distant friend, it may be proved that the spirit is pleased to assist my infirmities, but it is not it is no proof my friend is alive at the time I pray for him. If the next time I pray for him I should find my spirit straightened, I am not to conclude that my friend is dead, and therefore the Lord will not assist me in praying for him any longer. Once more, a remarkable dream has often been thought as decisive as any of these methods of knowing the will of God. True, many wholesome and seasonably seasonable admonitions have been received in dreams, but to pay great attention to dreams or especially to be guided by them, to form our sentiments, conduct our expectations upon them, is superstitious and dangerous. The promises are not made to those who dream, but to those who watch. The Lord may give to some upon occasion a hint or encouragement out of the common way. But to seek his direction in such things as just mentioned is unscriptural and ensnaring. Some presume they were doing God's service while acting in contradiction to his express commands. Others were infatuated to believe a lie, declaring themselves assured beyond a shadow of a doubt of things which never came to pass. When they were disappointed, Satan improved the occasion to make them doubt the plainest and most important truths and to count their whole former experience as a delusion. These things have caused weak believers to stumble. Offenses against the gospel have multiplied, and evil spoken of the way of truth. How, then, may the Lord's guidance be expected? After all these negative premises, the question may be answered in a few words. In general, he directs his people by affording them, in answer to prayer, the light of his Holy Spirit, which enables them to understand and love the scriptures. The word of God is not to be used as a lottery, nor is it designed to instruct us by shreds and scraps, which detached from their proper places have no determined import. But it is to furnish us with just principles, right apprehensions, to regulate our judgments and affections, thereby to influence and regulate our conduct. Those who study the scriptures in humble dependence upon divine teaching are convinced of their own weakness. They are taught to make a true estimate of everything around them and are gradually formed into a spirit of submission to the will of God. They discover the nature and duties of their situations and relations in life and the snares and temptations to which they are exposed. The word of God dwelling in them is a preservative from error, a light to their feet, and a spring of strength and consolation. By treasuring up the doctrines, precepts, promises, examples, and exhortations of Scripture in their minds and daily comparing them with the rule by which they walk, they grow into a habitual frame of spiritual wisdom. They acquire a gracious taste 
which enables them to judge right and wrong with a degree of certainty, as a musical ear judges sound. They are seldom mistaken because they are influenced by the love of Christ, which rules in their hearts and a regard for the glory of God. In particular cases, the Lord opens and shuts for them, breaks down walls of difficulty which obstruct their path, or hedges up their way with thorns when they are in danger of going wrong. They know their concerns are in his hands. They are willing to follow where and when he leads, but are afraid of running before him. They are not impatient. Because they believe, they will not be hasty, but wait daily upon him in prayer, especially when they find their hearts engaged in any pursuit. They are jealous of being deceived by appearances, and dare not move farther or faster than they can see his shining light upon their paths. I express at least their desire, if not their attainment. Though there are seasons when faith languishes and self prevails too much, this is their general disposition, and the Lord does not disappoint their expectations. He leads them on a right way, preserves them from a thousand snares, and satisfies them that he is and will be their guide even unto death. The positive side of the subject probably needs some amplification. The general rule may be stated thus, If we are daily concerned in seeking to please God in all the details, great and small, of our lives, He will not leave us in ignorance of His will concerning us. But if we are accustomed to gratify self and only turn up to God for for help in times of difficulty and emergency, then we must not be surprised if he mocks us and allows us to reap the fruits of our folly. Our business is to walk in obedient subjection to Christ, and his sure promise is, He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. John 8.12 Make sure you sincerely endeavor to follow the example Christ left us, and he will not leave you in uncertainty as to which step you should take when you come to the place of decision. This ends the reading of tape number 7 of the Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. Please go on to the next tape in the series and continue listening. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in soft cover format at a discount in our A to Z author listing. 
And please don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com. These CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.